Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to intriguing characters, personalities and unique people across the comedy global landscape. We've got some from Malaysia, we've got some from Singapore, we've got some from China, we've got some from Thailand, some from France, America, Australia. We, we, everything you can possibly imagine, they're going to be in this podcast. Now, today's guest is, how can I say, he is a real pie and mash individual. <laughs> Stevie Gray is a comedian who has gigged across the UK circuit. He has tried a bit of music. He does a lot of comparing. He runs his own gigs and he combines it all together to create a fantastic buffet of Chinese, Indian, American food which dazzles audience across the globe. Welcome, Stevie Gray. Thank you, thank you, Marvin. It's lovely to be here. What, do, are you a fan of the foods I've mentioned? Yeah, all of them. Although I can't help thinking you make me sound like one of those late night, all you can eat buffets, <laughs> you know, like, he's got a little bit of everything, but you'd be better off going to a pizzeria or an Indian restaurant rather than having a little tiny bit of everything. I would like to see some fusion foods, though. I think, like, especially with like Caribbean and African foods, okay. I want to see a bit of a combination there, like jerk chicken with egg fried rice and a bit of uh, fried chips. Oh, yeah. On a pizza. Delicious. Oh, my God. That would be great. New dish in Pizza Hut. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> They, they do tandoori. They they already do tandoori chicken on a pizza. So that's amazing. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, the, the, and they do pineapple. They do um, oh, they, they do so many things in the pizza dish, don't they? Yeah. Oh, we should have we should have done this. We could have been on the Apprentice this year. <laughs> we could have. The, then the uh, the shop selling cookie dough, which is a bit of a crazy investment from Lord Sugar. Why didn't they call that the Sugar Lounge? I do not know. Surely that's a better name for a large sugar cupcake shop. Yeah, yeah. why do they sort of take it to the business stage straight away? Why, surely with the name, doesn't that take a while and it should be, be more carefully thought out before they go out and do it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's rushed anyway, that show now. It just turns into Dragon's Den. It's like 10 weeks or 12 weeks and then turns into a, quite a poor episode of Dragon's Den all of a sudden. But to be honest, they do put a lot of terrible um, people in there <laughs> to make it entertaining. Yeah, just a bit. Imagine if there was a stand-up comedy, uh, what's it called, reality show. There's been them. You know what? I've actually been on one. I went on one and it was horrific. Which one was it? <laughs> so mine was ITV's Show me the f no one say show me the funny no it was a FHM stand stand up hero it was called oh but show me the funny was very similar to the Apprentice so in the end Patrick Monaghan won it but there's quite a few decent people in it I remember um, who was on that one so Stuart Goldsmith was on there with him. And uh, Ignacio Lopez, he was also on that, going back about 10 years. But again, it was, you know, it was 
it was daft because they were putting comedians in situations where they were never going to do well. And if anything, it made them look worse than them. Oh, well, what did they do? What situation did they put them in? Oh, so they were they were doing things like putting them in an army barracks one day and said, here we go, you need you, you, we need you to do five minutes of stuff you've never done before. Oh, we're going to put you in front of an audience entirely of women and you need to do five. I think they were Hindus and it might, I might be misremembering this, but yeah, it's like you've got to go in front of all these women on a Hindu who were drunk and do a brand new five minutes. And yeah, some, some people still, obviously, if you're going to do a new five minutes, you, you go and test it at, at a new material night. You don't go into what looks like an impossible gig and attempt to do it. But yeah, a few people got burnt by that one. My one was FHM Stand Up Hero, which I did in my first year. And it was great because I got to play Jonglers on a Saturday night and then I got to play a few of those and then they did the filming at the final. And yeah, my set just didn't work at all that night. And in hindsight, when they said, do you want to, uh, you don't have to have this footage go out. And I thought to myself back then, like, oh, publicity is good publicity. But yeah, going back, I would have just said, no, burn it. Burn the footage. Burn <laughs> I ever said that night. Mm. It, it, it is one of those things, isn't it? The, I mean, now you probably still use the quote or the TV credit without the image or the video. Yeah, well, I think you've got to, again, you've got to play to your strengths. If, you, if you've been on TV, granted it might not be the greatest TV appearance ever, but you've got to say you've been on it because it is a TV credit. Because a lot, a lot of comedy is about marketing, sadly. And you've just got to, you know, boast about what you've done. And a lot of us don't really enjoy that kind, that side of things. But it's what sells tickets. If, if you say on a ticket, oh, we've got Stevie Gray, people have been like, never heard of him. But if you put Stevie Gray, star of ITV's stand-up hero, they're like, oh, he's been on television. He must be better than quite a lot of people who haven't been on TV. We both know that's not how it works. But when you're trying to sell something, that is what you need to, you need to put any kind of credit or award or any quote from someone reputable that might help you along. That will always really help you. That makes you look better than what you, or it styles what you do. Yeah, I think so. And again, a lot of it is just nonsense. You've got to turn up on the night and deliver the goods. It's like no matter what who you are as a comedian, even an amazing comedian, you probably get a few minutes grace at the top because people know who you are. They might recognise you from television. But if you're not funny, no one's going to laugh and they don't really... They don't care. You've got to be funny on the night. And now, with everything that's sort of gone on in comedy and like how it's all stuck... Uh, what? How did you get started in comedy? Like, give us, tell us briefly about your background, and what was the Peter Parker moment in Spider-Man that made you go, "With great power comes great responsibility," and I'm going to become a comic. So, with, with me, I was always a massive fan of comedy growing up. I used to collect VHS videos and later DVDs. Uh, I used to send off for them and buy them all on eBay when eBay first came out. So. 
I'd already watched, I had a collection of like 150 videos by the time I was like 18. And then it was years later when I was walking through a town centre in Surrey. I was living in Woking at the time. And I, there was a guy there, a local promoter, Terry the Stand-Up, and he handed me a leaflet saying and said, have you ever thought about being a comedian? We're running a course tonight. So I went on this guy's course and there was only three of us on it and it cost £10. And by the end of it, he just taught us the basics, things like making a list of things you don't like and things that you really like and then swapping it around and liking the things you hate and hating the things you like. And by the end of it, he said, oh, wow, we we enjoyed what you did. We think there's something there. What? Why don't you go on one of the courses in London? So I ended up going on the Amused Moose course after that. And I think it was... It was then when I'd written my first set and done my first gig, That's what, that was my Peter Parker moment, where I thought, oh, actually, here, you know, maybe there is something, maybe I can make people laugh. And, yeah, but if it wasn't for me going, I had to go and buy a birthday card at lunch. Otherwise, I never would have walked through the town centre that night. And I don't think... I probably would have always thought I would like to give comedy a try, but I don't think I ever would have. You wouldn't have taken the next step. But... But so I mean, you've been doing comedy a while, and like you've mostly gigs sort of Midlands, dead in the centre, and a bit to the north. Now, how did you find out your comedy style? Because I think I remember listening to an interview, and you said that you sort of shifted to being a more musical comic, and now you sort you run a lot of nights and you MC a lot. Yeah, so I started I started out on the London open mic circuit. So my first like four or five years of comedy were based in the south so the first two years were mainly in london and i found at the time just the amount of new comics was unbelievable and they were all coming out and 2008 2009 all the new comics were either trying to be Stuart lee so they're either deconstructing the jokes and repeating the setup and then repeating it again and or they were trying to be frankie boyle and basically, it was just, if you've ever seen people at an open mic night trying to be Frankie Boyle, it's just offensiveness for offensiveness sake. And not even having punchlines, it was just like, I'm just going to say the most offensive thing possible. Yeah. So for me, I, I needed to move away from that. So I decided, even though I couldn't play the guitar at the time, I would take a guitar on stage and just play it and like sing random things and then try and write songs and play the guitar and sing these songs. And then before too long, I'd managed to get a couple of little songs and I could actually play the chords as well. And I found as soon as I had a guitar, even though it was only two minutes of a 10 minute set, more and more people started booking me. And they, it opened up doors and it was, it's crazy. It was just having one little niche. I remember at the time I always used to say my niche is that I have a guitar that I can't play. Like some people will have a guitar and can play it, but I have a guitar and can't play it. But that gives me a guitar over all the people just doing straight stand-up. And it was just, just whack. It was crazy. You know, going on, taking something that was out of my comfort zone. But also it meant that I got to learn the guitar. And when you were, when you stood in front of an audience staring at you, you were, you soon learn to play an instrument better because <laughs> you never want that that feeling ever again. What, what? How did it sort of compare to 
when you first start just doing jokes and like um yeah how was your experience when you before you did the guitar to how you did it after so before the guitar it was my style was just manic it was i was running around all over the place and everything was coming out at 100 miles an hour where i found that the guitar that rooted me almost to the spot so then it was a different different style it's like okay so this is now how you're going to perform you can't use all the stage you probably could but at the time i couldn't because i was just stood there i wanted to be with the mic stand and i think it's a good people call it a cheat stick or a six string applaud machine and you hear people be very like mean towards musical acts but it genuinely brings a different kind of laugh and a different level of laugh and i think having a guitar can often if you've got a crowd and it's really rowdy and your words aren't cutting it as soon as you bring the music along all of a sudden you can use that energy that's in the room even if it's not the best energy for comedy and use the guitar you watch people like christian riley or richard morton and they'll be going into these places on a Saturday night and it's like a bear pit. As soon as they start playing, boof, the whole place goes up. Everyone's loving it because even if they don't want the jokes, they can appreciate the music. Plus the jokes are there. So then they win on more, more than one, one level. So yeah, I found, I found having the music just elevated the set to a whole new level. And now... This may be a bit of an interesting question to ask because I know there's a quite a good musical comic on the London circuit called John Long, and he gets booked a lot to MC as well. Is there some sort of link in some respects for certain musical acts to become MCs and then to run their own nights like you have done? Possibly. I think with musical acts quite a few of them may have their own sound equipment that might be a, a way that they've ended up emceeing because a lot of the times in the midlands you see gig requests coming through if you can take your own pa system so i have a pa system anyway but i know that quite a few of my musical friends who also do comedy they would also have a pa system so that opens that up to them and also, I'm, I'm not sure whether or not, because sometimes musical comics don't really speak to the crowd. It's more of a, like, the fourth wall is well and truly up. So it's almost not a monologue, but they can go on and just sing the songs and have a similar pattern between them. But it's quite interesting that you say that, that. MCs and musical comedians go together hand in hand because I know quite a few who who definitely wouldn't. I think the one thing in a musical comedian's favour is if they've got quite a lot of songs, they could MC month in, month out. And if the crowd work isn't going well, they could always rely on a song to bring the energy in the room back up. What I was saying is that it doesn't just apply to musical comedians and a comedian that just uses jokes and stories and anecdotes, if they're struggling with the crowd work, they can always rely on one of their stories, anecdotes or jokes to try and win the crowd back to get them up to that level. It's all just a case of getting the crowd up to a nice warm level 
to make sure that you've put them in the best possible place for the next act that's about to come on. Yeah, it's, and I mean, you wrote a famous article on it, like how to be a bang average MC, and then you, you took the shift into being a comedy promoter as well. Now, with being a comedy promoter, what would you say are the, the benefits and the drawbacks of being a promoter? So I think the, the benefits of being a promoter is you can always book yourself for your own gigs, especially if you, well, if you MC. I'm not entirely sure you can book yourself to do a, you know, a spot. Maybe you could. Maybe a promoter could always give themselves five minutes in the middle at every gig to do new stuff. But I find with mine, it's more of a case of the big benefit was having to go to the same rooms time after time after time. And then a good benefit of it was that I was sure as long as the gig was running and I was booking it, I would be the MC. So the pressure was off. It wasn't the case of if I do badly tonight, this will be the last time I ever play this room. So having that pressure off, I believe, makes made me a better MC because it meant I can take more risks here. As long as I know the venue will be happy with what I put out, you know, I'm not trying to please a promoter in this case. So I think it's good in that respect. Conversely, it's extra stress for not that much. I'm really, I always like to try and get the best lineup for every gig. So I kind of roll up my MC fee and my promoter fee and all the money that I spend advertising, etc. Really, I, I undersell myself. But the nights are always brilliant. I do find is you could have a bad MC at a gig, but if you book three fantastic acts, the night will be a roaring success. Yeah. I also think if you've got an absolutely amazing MC and terrible acts, the MC could actually keep the night going together. You know, it could, so a really good MC could single-handedly keep comedy night going on their own if they needed to. So I always like to think, as long as I book fantastic acts, I know that on a really, you know, on a, on a good day, I can do really well as well MCing. So I, I always aim to do that. I always aim to get the strongest lineup just in case I have a bad day. And it's not often I do, but then it just takes the pressure off me. Yeah, I've noticed that. And, and I've seen like with the open mic nights, when you're an MC, they're a hundred times harder because even if you're on a bad day and then when the acts aren't, some of them don't do so well. My God, that is hard. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Especially the the kind of gigs that I think you'll be seeing down there in London, where they have more than ten acts on a bill. Yeah, there's there's plenty. Some have twenty. Some go on from like eight to eleven o'clock. Madness. I it's definitely um, it's the same with LA and New York. Though I mean, they get people to pay. They get comedians to pay to perform. They got bringers that you buy ten drinks and you bring ten people along. London's, you know, where where there's a big city and it's supposed to be sort of the entertainment capital of each country, they, they're going to be, because so many people want to be there, they're like, okay, I don't have to do certain things. 
it's just mad. It's just crazy. It's pay to play as well. You're the entertainment. But this this is it. It's it's a real sad situation at that level because that's the level where you want to be promoting people to go and take risks. Whereas if you know someone that's had to take 10 people with them and they've all had to spend money, they're not going to take that risk to do the bit of material that possibly would catapult them into the next level. So I, I'd advise anybody from the London circuit that's doing these gigs, come up north a bit where you can get up to 10 minutes as an open spot and you don't have to bring anybody and you might even get paid. It I hear that a lot. I hear that in, in the UK at the moment, even though the North and the Midlands, they generally don't get it. But they pay a bit more down. In the South, they have more jobs and all that, and it's supposed to be economically more successful. But in the North, in comedy, it's, it seems to be the reverse. Yeah. I think it, maybe it's because there's not as many comics. I think London, for anything, because there's so many people, and so many people would head to London, like talented people. I'm not saying that there's not talented people elsewhere, but probably not on the scale. Yeah. So, yeah, so anybody, I would definitely... The advice I was always given was start off in London, do the open mic circuit, get as many gigs under your belt as you can. And when you start getting good enough to get paid work, get out of London, get around the M25. And that is where the paid work starts coming in. So you get longer slots and a bit of money. And then they said, and then you'll get to a level where you get that good. London will come back asking for you. And that's when you go back into London and get the big money. Thing is with me, I moved out of London and they never asked me to come back. So I'm, <laughs> I'm currently getting quite nice money, but outside of London. But if anybody in London wants to book me, I'm more than happy to come back down. I'll We'll sort something out. <laughs> yeah. now, 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 with like you wrote an article on MCing, and you mentioned like Danny McGinley's like famous article on like how to MC. And yeah, I yeah. interviewed him on a podcast. Like he's a great comedian, great cool guy to chat to, and like there's a lot of great things in his article in terms of how to MC. And I always see MCs using the line, "What's your name? What job you do?" And it gets a bit tiresome. I like what he said in terms of when you start a show, thank them for coming because there's so many things you could have done and then going into using a lot of crowd-based questions and finding out who wants to engage first before you do any of that. Yeah. I see so many times a lot of people don't bother with that. No, and it's um, that that article is absolutely gold dust. I've never met him, but if I did, I'd definitely have to buy him a drink or two because I must have read that easily a hundred times. And I, I've always told everyone anyone that wanted to MC, read the article because it just is wonderful and it covers all the bases and it also covers that emotion of you're the canary in the mind nobody knows how the night's gonna go and you're the one that goes on first to kind of test the water and then he even mentions all the things like what happens if somebody doesn't do very well what happens if someone does really well and yeah it's I think people should just read that. Anyway, anybody wanting to try comedy should read that to get an understanding of what an MC actually does. It's yeah, it, it, it's got a great lot of stuff in there. I think um, he even said that it, it it's been translated in Mandarin. Really, <laughs> uh, like 
And then you wrote an article as well on top of that, like you said, how to be a bang average MC and like what, what, what sort of led you to writing the article? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, I think in the Midlands, I, I MC quite a lot. So let's say I gig three times a week, on average, at least two of them, if not all three at the moment will be MC gigs. So my face, my face and my name, uh, around in the Midlands as an MC and everybody always says oh we like how you MC because you just you just go on and talk to people you know it's almost like the pressure's off but it never was this way it never used to be this way it used to be me frantically panicking thinking oh, I've done all the material I've ever done at this venue I don't know what to do ah like reading Danny's article to think what else could I try and then it's like one day it just clicks, you know, it doesn't matter as long, quite a few established MCs always told me, as long as the audience are facing the front and are quiet and they're not heckling and the phones are off and they know how many acts there are, where the toilets are, how many breaks, he says, you've done your job. You know, that is what the MC should do. Just make the room ready for any kind of comedy. So with that in mind, I think it's a lot easier to then start working out how to be a, an MC and then be more comfortable in your skin. But I wrote that article basically to help people that say to me, oh, how do you get better at being an MC? What's the, what's the magic rule? And there isn't one. You know, there's no, you don't just become a better MC overnight. You've got to go out and I hate to say, you probably got to die quite a few times to realize I've done something wrong there. What have I done wrong? Let's learn from my mistakes. And would you say setting up your own gig is probably the main one f it's to get better at MC? Because if you're a new act and you say you want MC, promoters are a bit nervy to take their chance sometimes on New York. I mean, a lot of promoters are very supportive and you're going to want to do it. But if you want to get the amount of stage time you want to MC. Yeah, I think the, the other thing you could do is you can tailor, tailor your act so that it contains emceeing elements. So if you wanted to, you could use your set and then speak to someone in the audience and ask them a question, which you can somehow segue into your next bit of material. So if you can't get the MC gigs, there are ways and means of tailoring what you are saying in your normal club set to get better at emceeing and get better at working with audience suggestions. One thing I would advise that if you're going to do that, you really need to speak with the compare beforehand and just say, look, would you mind? A lot of them wouldn't, it wouldn't bother. But sometimes you see acts who want to be an MC and they're booked to do a set and they go out and they just MC the room again. And I've seen people go out and ask the same questions to the same people that the MC has asked. So that, that just makes a really awkward night because the audience are like, well, we, we know this. I could tell you what the answers are. I know what the names are. And, what it is. and it is, it's crazy. But setting up your own gig is a great way of doing it. For people wanting experience to start with, I think they just probably first need to look for anybody wanting to do, anybody wanting MCs. So I would go right back to the bottom rung of comedy go to the lowest kind of open mic nights and just say look please can i be the mc here and then work your way up through the better gigs and then through the semi 
pro gigs and then the then eventually the pro gigs what is this what do you make of like dealing with hecklers and dealing with you know when when crowds don't want to talk so hecklers i don't know what you found but i often find that heckling is nowhere near as bad as everybody is led to believe and people think it's a real problem but i always find is as long as it's not disrupting the show i'm quite happy to have a heckle because it gives you something else to work with and you don't have to you don't always have to deal with heckles people think someone heckles and then you've got to go in all guns blazing but that's not really the case a lot of the time people are trying to help you you know they, they might not be heckling they might be saying oh we can't hear you or that happened to me and i've seen acts throw the gigs where somebody's been trying to join you know someone's just saying oh yeah that happened and they've gone in with a kind of frankie boyle-esque real horrific put down about your mum or something and it doesn't work. But I think being an MC, if you're used to dealing with people and asking questions and working with responses, I think that can make you much better at dealing with any kind of heckle because then if someone heckles you, you can almost take the heckle on face value and hear what the words are. And then I would say the best advice I would give to anyone is if somebody heckles you, always repeat the heckle back down the microphone one is so that everybody else in the room can hear it and hear what's been shouted and two it'll probably buy you two or three additional seconds time to think of absolutely anything that is related to that heckle so if you heckled me with something now i would then say it back and then anything at all in the world even if it's weak, it could be a really poor attempt. But if it's somehow related to what you've just shouted at me, seriously, the crowd want you to win. They they are rooting for the comedian to win. Okay. You have a nice hat. Can I borrow it? <laughs> and then I've got a nice hat. Can I borrow it? And then I would, what I would do, there's no point shooting you down there because that's really nice. I would, I could then use that to say what a lovely head of hair you have and then go on to why my hair's receding and what's going on in my life and blah, blah, blah. You know, I need the hat. You don't need the hat. And then we could go on that way. But the thing is, you've said that there. And, you know, it wasn't very, it's not me. It's, if anything, it's a compliment. So then we could just have a laugh. It's like, is this what you do? Do you just you just sit in the audience shouting compliments out? And then we could <laughs> go down. What else are you gonna say? I like your I like your t-shirt, you know, and get down in that. <laughs> I always find try and keep everyone happy. Be, you know, if you can make people happy to be there. Okay. Yeah, unless they're sort of causing disruption or whatever, if they're as you said, or unless they're doing a negative thing then they're just joining in. And if they are negatively getting in, just get the security, get rid of them, or the barman. Well, that's, but sadly, we're in, we're in a situation <laughs> where a lot of 
gigs, unless, unless you're playing the big weekend clubs, a lot of places don't have security on the door. Or the bar staff probably wouldn't want to get involved, you know, if you're above a pub, say. So really, I think it's up to the promoter and the comedians themselves to just try try the best to work it out with people. I, I had an incident the other month where there was a guy on the front row who would just join in after every single word I said. So I would say, good evening, everybody. And he'd be like, good evening, sir. I'd be like, how is it? I'm very well, sir. It's like, oh, I'm from all I've just come from down the road. And by the end, after about a minute, I had to say, look, sir, you, you can't do this because it's, you know, I'm addressing the entire room. You can't join in after. Why not? I've paid my money. Why can't I join in after? And by the end of it, he's like, he got, he was in that fight or flight mode where he stood up and he was shaking. It's like, what's going on here? You know what? And in the end, I had to put the mic on the floor, go down into the crowd, get him. I gave him a cuddle. And I was like, look, if you want to join in, I'm going to have to uh, ask you to stand at the back, if not leave. And it was so awkward. But the thing is, if you let people like that carry on talking, they are going to ruin the night. Yeah. So yeah, it was a yeah, it's very very strange where some people don't even realise they're doing it. it. And it's also the, the the thing with the comics as well. Sometimes there's definitely a misunderstanding between both sides. I think that sometimes I feel there's a misunderstanding. Like some comics will. I've had it a couple of times where they deliberately act strange or they do different things to try and screw things up behind the gig, or they say they they behave in a very odd manner, and it's a bit like what 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 good does this do? It's yeah. going to make it uncomfortable for everyone else. And yeah, no, it's crazy. But... I don't know whether or not they're experimenting, trying to you know, just trying to see what works for them. But yeah, anything that's detrimental to the gig, I just think, why would you do this? Both comedians or audience members. I think, I mean, one thing that was, I had a while ago was, there was this bloke and a woman and um, the MC was doing a bit. The guy and her were getting a bit touchy-feely and then the woman, the female comic said something to them and he said to impress his woman, oh, be careful what you say, because I'll really turn it the other way. And she said, okay. She left him for a bit. And then uh, this other audience member goes out with another person and says some little comment to him. He gets his ego a bit brushed, and he said, what? Bruv, you want to go right now, yeah? You want to fight? You want to fight? Let's do it. Let's do it. Just as this guy was leaving. And then I, I was trying to hold him back and he says, yeah, 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 what, what, what? And they were getting a bit of an argument right, right while another comic was on stage. No. And then, well, I just called the barman to go and drag him down and sort it out. And he did calm down eventually, but it was a bit awkward for everyone involved. Oh, that's madness. I'm a, I can't think of the comic's name. I, I, did, a, I did a show in Hemel Hempstead years ago. And I remember by the time the headliner came on, a fight had broken out. And uh, the headliner was stood on a chair whilst this fight was breaking out around him. And he was commentating on the fight. It was, it was so bizarre. It was, yeah, it's just madness. But as the comic, you've got to still try and remain in character. No matter what's happening, do not let the heckle shake you. You've just got to stay in exactly the same character that you would be 
if you was doing your set and then use that you know what would this person that i'm pretending to be even if it's like a heightened version of you on stage see for me my acts are always really quite confused or amazed by things so it's like if you shouted that about my heart i'd be like look at you why are you joining in you know what i don't understand it what did you not get attention as a kid you know that kind of thing and then try and work out like what's going on oh wow this guy just shouts compliments so yeah, I'd always say stay in character. Don't whatever you do, do not lose your, do not lose your temper. That's the worst thing you can do. The, I spoke to um, Sally Holloway on the podcast about a couple of weeks ago, and she said uh, Harry Hill had a very unique way of dealing hecklers, and like he, he, someone would heckle him, and he said, "Hello there, sir. I want you to know that I have a very good pork chop at the back of the kitchen." <laughs> And then another guy would say it and he said, I've got two pork chops at the back of the kitchen. And it was very funny and very awkward. And they used people like, why the hell has he said that? Yeah. It's, yeah. He's just been, I'm reading his autobiography at the minute and it's a fantastic read because it's strange how he's ended up as that character. He's quite sweary in the book, considering you never really ever hear him swear on stage. And I think that, again, is that difference between being a comedian and then being like a family entertainer almost now. But he's, he's on tour this year, and I've got tickets for that, and I can't yeah. wait. How much of it is, a, is it an accentuation of him, and how much of it is actually him? Because I, I don't know about him off stage, but it is a character, but how much of it is... Oh, it's just... Some of the things he does are just balmy. I don't know where he comes up with the ideas. But yeah, he's a, you know, a funny man, but he had a quite a serious job working in the hospital. Ah. So that, I think some of it's probably uh, probably come from that. So maybe that's where he's got a dark humour and then all of a sudden it's completely the opposite and it's just like crazy zany humour. I think tracking your progress, the best thing or the best advice I could give anyone was, would be have, have something that you want to measure it by. Do you want to be on TV? Do you want to play certain clubs? Do you want to be an MC or a headliner? Do you want to earn a certain amount of money? And have something fixed where you could say to yourself, yes, this is what I want. It's, sorry, sorry if this sounds like a rant now, Marvin, but... I get really frustrated, you know, when people get jealous about either people on TV or people getting on a really good lineup. And it's like, oh, how did they get on that lineup? I was like, well, did you apply for it? And they're like, no. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's your first step. You know, you've got to apply. You've, you've got to do it. You know, people are expecting to get gigs by not applying as thinking people are going to come and just pick them out when if i if i put a spot up for a gig now i know i even though some of my gigs are small i get 50 or 60 people applying for one spot so if you put that in london it's going to be like in the hundreds applying for one spot so yeah they um i think you need to go out and you need to try talent is one thing and putting in good performances again is another but you've got to go out there and you've got to apply for these things and you've got to take risks and just be prepared for rejection 
and a hell of a lot of rejection. Yeah. Sorry, that really, that sounds really quite negative, but yeah, just be prepared to die and be prepared for rejection, and that are the best, the best two things you can do in comedy. Unless you're really lucky. Yeah, but I think, I think, yes, there are people that are lucky, and they might get a break where they do a show and someone is in the crowd. But really, I think if you go on, what what I've learned is the people who have gone on better, no one I have ever known who has gone on to do something half decent in comedy has had a lucky break. They have always put the groundwork in. It's like I see a lot of people give negative negative views towards people like Michael McIntyre or Jack Whitehall. And you hear it a lot on the circuit and they're like, oh, why is Michael McIntyre on? You know, we don't like him or we don't like Jack Whitehall. Regardless of your thoughts and either of those two, there is no denying they have put the groundwork in and they have gigged relentlessly night after night after night, honing their act and getting to a point where they are brilliant and their act is bulletproof. And whether or not you like it, there's no denying. And it's not like, I hear people say, oh, but Jack Whitehall's dad, you know, he's in entertainment. He's just put in there. You don't just get put there. You can't just be put on the stage. You can't be put on an arena or hosting like massive great big award shows and expect to do well. You've got to put the work in. So there is there is luck, but the more work you put in, the luckier you will get. Yeah, you've got to test things out and find out. Yeah, it's a... Uh... The harder you work, the luckier you get, so to speak. Now, one of the things that I want to say to you is um, for anyone that is listening right now, and they're like, yo, Stevie Gray, he is like, yo, dog, he is like a chicken tikka masala with num bread. Um, <laughs> what would, how do they find out about you? So me, I am, um, so I'm still, <laughs> Gray. So I'm on all the socials. There's Stevie, Stevie Gray, Gray with an A. And I started my own clubs, Flat Cap Comedy, which are mainly in the Midlands. So around Derby, Nottingham, Leicester. But yeah, I travel all around the country. And if anybody likes what I've said or they want to ask any advice or anything, please get in touch. You know, I think a lot of comedians do love answering questions and helping people out. We are genuinely a really helpful bunch. Right, so you know how to get in touch with Stevie. Um, also, if you want to find out about, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you want to find out about more about the episode, subscribe, share it with your friends, give us a view on Amazon or iTunes. But also, please join the Patreon, help support the podcast. Uh, you guys have been amazing. Hopefully, see you guys in the next episode. <laughs>